Hello Man fans, Ollie Man here with The Modern Man and hello Chris who's been in touch to say Ollie, thank you to you and Alex very much for answering my question about lube and conception last week. The bad news is I now have no need for your advice since we recently found out my wife is pregnant. Uh, Chris, congratulations. I know you guys had been trying for a while. Uh, Chris says he has saved last week's episode for future reference, though, if they do ever decide to have another baby. Uh, yeah, it's always good, isn't it, to have those reference podcasts to hand. I think we can all relate to that. Who needs Wikipedia? Um, talking of pregnancy, this week's middle feature is about being pregnant, but it's about what can go wrong. Uh, not in a light-hearted way like in our How To Be A Dad episodes. It is a really emotional story this week. Uh, it's a couple of man fans, Steve and Joe, who got in touch with the show and invited myself and producer Matt over to their house to hear their devastating experiences of trying to have a baby. It is very compelling. It will really make you think about how we discuss that subject amongst our friends and at work. Um, but no two ways about it. It is a sobering listen this week. Um, but, you know, we are a magazine show, Light and Shade. We are about real people's stories. That's what we do. And the rest of the magazine remains just as varied as ever. Uh, in this week's show, you will learn what Ollie Peart thinks about whilst he's having his chakras rubbed. You'll learn a good use for brown towels in your bedroom. And you'll learn why you should stop checking your emails right now. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. The whole time on a knife edge of, is this going to happen? When's it going to go wrong? When's it going to go wrong? Scans, statistics and searching for a heartbeat. When trying for a baby gets very trying, indeed. Rub dried up crocodile hearts on your phallus. And Alex Fox probes an anal question. But first, it's time to talk trends. It's the zeitgeist with a man who recently attended, was it the 50th birthday party of BBC Radio Solent? No, it wasn't. It was the fifth birthday of Breakfast in Dorset. It's Ollie Peart. We had now We had Lauren Bannon, who's like a voice finalist. So last week, man fan Nicola tasked you with trying out a gong bath... That's right. You speculated that that would be literally sitting in an upturned gong filled with water. Yeah, I was wrong. Uh, what happened next? Well, turned up at her house. It was in her house. Yeah. Uh, usually, the reason I'm saying that is because usually she does these classes with groups of people. But rather than having a group experience, I went for a one-on-one -on -one sound bath. So I'm just going to correct you there. Not quite a gong bath, although gongs can be involved. Right. And I went in and... Before we started, Nicola wanted to show me the instruments. There's the gong, mm. there's the Tibetan bowl, and then there's the crystal bowl. Like I thought I might go in and she'd be like, okay, come on in. Mm. Okay, I'm just going to dangle yeah. this thing over your face. <laughs> it was none of that. It was like, oh, you're right. Do you want a coffee? Right. Yeah, yeah, I'll have a coffee. And it was... Uh, yeah, Work a day. Yeah, fine. And yeah. It was just You're for a gong bath, mate. No yeah, worries. You're for a gong bath. Don't worry. <laughs> I'll just go out of the garage and go and get him. Very relaxed. And she said, right, what we're going to do is we're going to sit down and I'm going to ask you a few questions to sort of get a sense of how you're feeling. What kind of personal questions did she ask you there? One to ten on how you're feeling physically, emotionally, mentally and energetically. Mm -hmm. So she could get a sense of an impeding flow, they call it. So is there something in my chakra system that is blocking my personal development or something that I want to achieve in life? Okay, 
At this point, I mean, I should ask you to clarify for the record how you feel about chakra systems as a thing. Okay. Because well, obviously for a lot of people, their bullshitometer is already ringing here. Yeah, sure. Mine went off. It, it was going off big time. And I, but I didn't want to be rude. Nicola's really lovely. And I was thinking, come on, this is nonsense. Also, at the time, I was ill. I had snot coming out my nose. Mm. My eyes were streaming. All I cared about was, have I got snot in my beard? So I wasn't really bothered about the chakra. All I was interested in is when I get up on that bed and lie down, it's like a massage bed. That's basically yeah. what it looks like. Is it going to feel nice? Because yeah, yeah. I feel like shit right now. Right. So <laughs> all I want is to feel good. I was assured that this would feel very nice. And the whole point of it and the whole point of the sound from the bowls in particular is that it gets you into a really deep meditative state like mm-hmm. of deep sleep. So it's like, well, it's not deep sleep. It's like a, the state of sleep where you're not quite asleep. You know, when you kind of hear yourself, you catch yourself snoring. I think it's that point of sleep. I get what you're saying, like a kind of semi-trance-like thing. Yeah. Like when you're watching telly and you realise you're not really concentrating, but actually you are watching Countdown somehow. It's described as a therapy. And we went through these questions. And it was weird because I ended up talking about my anxiety. I don't know if you know this, but I've suffered from anxiety. That's amazing, isn't it? Men. <laughs> this is men. I felt really odd. And I said to her, I said, oh, I'm just going to stop myself for a minute because I'm telling you an awful lot. Yeah. And, you're, and, and this was uh, yeah, before and after the bath, mm. the gong bath thing. What kind of anxiety were you telling her about? So it's uh, more sort of social anxiety. So I will be... Well, no, it's two things. Work and social. So like if in certain social environments, supermarkets... I know it's not a social environment, but, you know, it's like really busy. So there's loads of people around. I hate London, right? That's okay. why I live in Dorset. Okay. Uh, and uh, and like with work, like I'd just be thinking about work and like stressed about work and things like that. Okay, so general stress and feeling anxious in crowds. Yeah, yeah. Okay, how did she say she could help with that? So the idea of the gong bath is that she uses the sound that she bathes you in, so sort of holds these bowls above you, actually puts some on my back as well. She put a crystal bowl on your back? She put the Tibetan bowls on my back, which are made of like a, it's like a a bronze bowl. Are you clothed? Yes. And I did ask, do do I take my clothes off? (laughs) And I don't know if that was like a bit, but she said a lot of people make that mistake. Because it's a Californian thing. I I mean, it's hot there. Mm -hmm. Because I've read up on this, people like Isla Fisher swear by gong baths. Yeah. I was imagining people in swimsuits. But for some of it, she put the bowls on my back. And then so like it's like you feel the vibration for your body. But she said that I'm only doing that so you can experience it because it's actually a slightly different treatment. Uh So usually she just put the sound above me. But the point is what she's doing as the practitioner is listening for changes in the sound to try and detect in what area of my body is causing the blockage in my chakras. I think I have that right. (laughs) Okay. And how much of it was directly related to the concerns that you'd flagged up? I mean, half an hour in, did she suddenly say, imagine you're in Tesco? Or No talking. Not? No. No talking. Apparently, I talk quite a lot. She goes, people don't normally talk in this. <laughs> and I'm going, Why oh, that I one's weird. That? <laughs> the, the sounds are like a, they're like a slow pulsing. You, you visualize like a ball, like going round inside your head. Mm. The crystal bowls started first. They were amazing. Like just, just, just a nice sound, but they're really loud. It's so loud. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, what, like sort of someone doing building work next door type loud? Y- yes. Like, it's incredibly loud. It's like being played out of some sizable speakers. But you have to remember the bowls are like, some of them are maybe sort of 15 inches in diameter. So they're quite big. Okay. So yeah. it's like this bellowing what, howl. And what's the sound of it? Because you've explained the bowl's made of crystal. Mm-hmm. What's she putting around the bowl to make the noise? So it's got a rough outer edge. Yeah. And then she uses like a, a, a wooden stick. Like that rubs on the outer edge, and that causes the vibrations, which then vibrate and resonate in the room. Okay, but it's incredibly loud, and they're both loud—the Tibetan uh, bowls and the crystal bowls. And having the vibrations pulse through you—did that make a difference as opposed to just hearing the noises? Because, like, you know, you could at home lie down on the bed, 
go on Spotify, find a chill out playlist. Yeah, I haven't tried that. So, but I'd imagine it's the equivalent of when you go and see a live band, right? You, you know, you actually can feel that vibration properly yeah. like, firsthand. And the meditative side of it does work. Like, I did find myself sort of drifting off. I don't know if that's because I felt like shit and I was really tired. I don't mm. think so. Some of the sounds were really nice. And because it's that pulsing, you find yourself tuning into it a bit. This sounds so wanky, doesn't it? No, but no, you no. do. It's like when they... Is it, is it Wayne Rooney apparently falls asleep when he listens to a Hoover? It's a bit like that, I think. Did you manage to turn off voices in your head? Yeah. Were, you, were you empty or were you thinking a little bit, oh, in an hour's time, I've got to get back in a cab and I've got to get back to the train station? No. The only thing that made me switch on again is when my snot started dripping on the pillow. Mm-hmm. That sound is like going around in your head and it is like you, you can visualise it. It is slightly hypnotic. All you can do is focus on that because it's all that's there. It is like the builders next door because it's the only fucking thing you can concentrate on. And how did you feel afterwards? Pretty chilled out. I wouldn't say any more relaxed than when I went in. I'm sure my questionnaire that I had to answer afterwards would probably contradict that. But I I just felt just a bit mellow. I think if you have a very stressful lifestyle and you just want to get away for half an hour, especially in the group ones, I think the group ones it probably would be quite a nice thing to do. It is nice. It's mm. just a really nice thing. And uh, I also had a drum massage, which is a big African drum. And she hits the African drum and the vibrations sort of pulse against your body. So it's like a, it's supposed to be like a massage. And that was quite nice. Okay, well done. Um, <laughs> right, time to set you your challenge for the week. I'm excited. And it's, it's this, he says, the, passing him an object. That's a Nokia 3310. Yes, it is. And it's one of the new ones as well. It's not one that we've dug up from eBay. That's got a USB port on it and everything. It's like a bar of soap. You can play Snake in glorious Technicolor. Why do you think I might have just handed you a dumb phone? Sell drugs? <laughs> no. The challenge comes from man fan Stefan, who says, I've had two personal injury calls in the past week, despite not having had an accident. Mm-hmm. Is it me, or are we all getting more robocalls? I would like Ollie to investigate where they come from and how I can avoid getting them. Does he? Know, he wants me to investigate. Yeah, he knows you're not a journalist, Ollie. He wants you to investigate it in the same way that Gloria Hunterford presents Rip Off Britain. I suspect. Uh, so what we've done <laughs> is we've given you this this dumb phone, and we, we the idea being that's an un, that's a brand new number, right? We've got your SIM card mm-hmm. that is only registered to that phone, right? What we want you to do is to register for as many junk services, call up as many of your friends as you can, text people from that phone for one week, and see how many, if any robocalls you receive and then try and work out where they're coming from and why you've received them. Use a phone, basically. Well, use the, yes, use the phone, but like provably for the very first time. Because if, if I said to you now, well, you know, for a week, let's see how many robocalls you get on your smartphone, mm-hmm. we wouldn't know the kind of dodgy websites you go to, mm-hmm. where you've given that number or what you've registered it with. Whereas we know that is a vanilla, blank, dumb phone. Let's see what you have to do to get robocalls. I don't actually get them. I, I'd say I only get about one a week. For what? It is usually those personal injury ones, actually. It's, what it is, it rings, you pick up, mm-hmm. and you say hello, and they're quite good now because it's, it's actually a person's voice, not a robot's voice. Isn't it? Hello? Yeah. Hello. And then you say, hi, I'm, you know, whatever. I'm standing in super drugs. I can't really talk at the moment. And then they respond to what you've said. So they'll say, uh, that's okay. I'm calling about... And then you realise it's a robot. Hello? Have you been involved in an injury? God, it's really good. Yeah, it is. Yes, really good. I have. I've fallen over on the uh, way into work. Give I'm, us your money, I'm 10, mate. £10,000. Good luck. Thanks. 
Hello, man fans. Uh, this is Matthew Brown. I have the best job title on the planet. I'm a productivity ninja. And today I'm going to give you my three top tips for managing your time, putting away distraction and achieving maximum impact in your life. So my tip number one is get over email. If in the old days you'd spent half of your life dealing with correspondence, you would have been fired and rightly so. So we need to get back to a slightly more old school way of working, where we deal with our correspondence for short periods of time and then just get on with our jobs. And if you want two micro tips, I would go with the following. First of all, switch off the notifications on email. That's the little email pop-ups, which will give you a lot more time just to think and do useful stuff. And the second thing is you can switch Outlook. So when it starts, it doesn't go to email, it goes to calendar. And it's a nice way of starting your day, thinking about where you are in the week and what you might have on in the day, rather than getting thrown into the mania of email. My tip number two is don't forget to go home. Simple fact is the work never ends and you can test this. Get out your to-do list, put a time estimate by each thing and then add up all the time estimates. And you'll find an interesting thing, which is you probably have 10 days worth of work on your plate to do today and every day and one day to do it in. There's no conceivable way you can do that. Even if you worked 10 hours in the day, then you worked in the evening, then you never slept, ate, or went to the bathroom, you would never ever get all the work done. Work nine to six, and at six o'clock, stop working or go home. The most productive people I know have really clear start and end time to their working day. Nine o'clock start, six o'clock finish. And the least productive people I know work all the time. My tip number three is start the day really well. The normal way to start the day is as follows. It's called the reactive start to the day. Wake up, check email. On the commute into work, deal with email, fret about your day, get to work, dive into email. There's a much better way of doing it. It's called proactive start to the day. That is, get up, read the newspaper, don't look at email. On your commute into work, don't look at email. Read an improving book. Commune with your fellow passengers, whatever you feel is appropriate. When you get to work, again, do not look at email. Map out the five most important tasks. What are the five things that if you got those things done today and nothing else good happened, it would still be a really good day's work. And then go into email and see what's arrived overnight. And if something more important has come in, it needs to go on the list. And this is a really good way of starting your day in a high value way, rather than the normal thing, which is get to your desk fart about with email for three hours and before you know it, it's lunchtime. You can find out more about how to become a productivity ninja by visiting the Think Productive website at thinkproductive.co.uk or email me, matthew at thinkproductive.co.uk. Thanks to Matthew for his life hacks, sponsored by Podcast Lounge for Windows. Podcast Lounge is the new podcatcher for Windows 10 devices. It's an app where you can discover, subscribe and enjoy podcasts. It features Spotlight, where you can find out about the latest and greatest podcasts. And today, it features the winners of the 2018 British Podcast Awards. And keep checking back for more curated lists from special guests. What will you get up to in the lounge? Go to Windows 10 Store and download your free trial of Podcast Lounge now. Now, we need to talk about miscarriage. Having a miscarriage can be devastating for women and their partners, but despite it being the most common kind of pregnancy loss, it's not something that's publicly discussed very often. So when Steve Peck wrote to me and said that he and his wife Jo wanted to come onto the podcast to share their story of having had not just one, not two, 
but recurrent miscarriages. I felt we should listen. This is their story. We were in the same maths class at school. It wasn't actually until uh, we were about 18 that we kind of first got together. He'd gone on holiday and um, was having quite a nice time. And I'd heard about it. Oh. And uh, got quite jealous by all accounts. Broke your heart? Yes, a little bit. So when he came back, I kind of sort of laid my cards on the table. And um, anyway, we got together. But at the time, we were very different people. I was a bit of a party girl. And he was a bit more laid back. Steve's, Steve's a very chilled guy. And I was sort of wanting to go out and let my hair down quite a lot. So I went to uni and sort of we kind of parted ways. And then it was a about six, seven years ago, we just sort of f- filtered back into each other's lives. We were spending quite a bit of time together. He helped me move. I bought a house. He helped me move into my house. I think it was kind of on the cards. And then um, we went to a, a friend's uh, birthday party. And uh, and again, he was talking to another girl. And I was and I was very much the green-eyed monster. <laughs> so I was kind of right. Let's, you know, let's let's give this a go. Well, you made the move. I, d- I did make the move, yes. I'd broken his heart before um, and I was very conscious of this. And so I knew that I had to tread very carefully because of the age we were at and the feelings that I had. It was a case of... You were in your late 20s at this point. Yeah, yeah. So and then. Um, so did you think, this is it, we'll get married, family? Yeah, I did because I kind of... I'd known Stephen, obviously, sort of for a long time. And I, I knew that if we kind of got back together... it it was going to be for the long haul. I knew that that, that in my head, I, I don't know about him, but I knew, I knew that, would, that would be it. We went in for the scan and the sonographer said, um, are you sure about your dates? And then, you know, literally as soon as someone says that, you think, hang on a minute. It was uh, measuring for a six and a half week, which obviously I was 12 weeks, so... Basically, the the pregnancy, um, they sort of talked about viability and they they basically said it it doesn't look good, but, you know, we need to come back in two weeks to see if there's been any growth. It could be that you've got your dates wrong. In my head, it was kind of game over. You don't lose six weeks. If they'd have said, oh, it's measuring at 10 weeks, 11 weeks, you kind of think, okay, well, yeah, maybe there's something here. But the fact they were saying six and a half weeks and there's no heartbeat, we can't detect anything then, yeah. I got through about a week. I wasn't at work and started having some quite bad discomfort. Stephen was at work and he travels quite far around. So I phoned my sister. My sister was actually pregnant at the time. So she came and kind of, and I was sort of curled up on the, in the bedroom and having passed a few clots. And passing blood clots, is it very different to having a heavy period? Is it you uh, know immediately this is something very wrong? Yes, absolutely. It's like you're 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 passing something. It's it's obviously if you're a woman, it's quite difficult to explain. But yes, it it felt very different. It kind of felt that the, it was the start of a miscarriage. I know how common miscarriages are. My sister, nine years ago, her first pregnancy was a miscarriage. So I kind of knew that they they happened and I just thought that Steve and I, we were, you know, one of the unlucky ones. Do you remember where you were when you found out that Joe was pregnant again? Probably would have been upstairs one morning. What did you feel? Oh, massive apprehension again. Not, not expecting everything to go wrong, but with what had happened the first time, 
there was a chance it would happen again. And was there an element of you that thought, well, this could be closure, though, on what happened the first time? Actually, yes. that we could have a yeah, successful pregnancy. I was pregnancy. hopeful. I was, yeah. Obviously, I was massively hopeful, but I was almost going into it preparing for it to be what it was before and stealing myself or having to look after Joe again if it did happen. We went for the first scam and again, um, you know, check your dates. There was no heartbeat, but come back again. We'll, we'll, we'll check again. So we went back for another scam. No, unfortunately, you know, it's not grown since last time. I was basically um, given the option of having an operation to, to remove um, the embryo and everything that was sort of in me. Or I was given the choice, you can take some tablets and go home and have it naturally. Um, well, given I'd experienced, obviously, a natural miscarriage once already, I, I thought, actually, if I go into hospital, it's done and dusted. And they put me out and then literally I wake up and it, it's done. Did you think after that second one, let's pause this and, and not keep trying? I gave up. I gave up at two. I thought, this is never going to happen. I mean, I did research into adoption. I did research into surrogacy. And did you actually think, I'm not going to have unprotected sex anymore because I don't want this to happen again? Or did you still think, no, we'll see I, what No, I just never, I just thought this is never going to proceed through to a point where we're going to have children. For some reason, we, it's not going to work for us. But Joe said she wanted to keep trying. So we kept trying. She got pregnant again a third time. Did you tell your family? Every time I told my mum and dad... And um, I work with one of my brothers, so because I've told him, I would have told the other brother. And Joe and her sister are quite close, so her family knew. But then the the more it went on, it was more a case of well, fingers crossed, not to get too excited, not to get too excited. And we went for a scan at seven weeks, and we had a heartbeat. It's the first time we'd ever had a heartbeat. And I just remember both of us crying. And then getting in the car and going around to my parents' house, showing them the scan that they'd given us. And it just being literally one of the best days of my life. And at that point, did your pessimism evaporate a bit? Did you think this little, is the one? Yeah, I, I, I started to believe that it was going to be okay. I think I did a couple of tests, actually, for that. We came back uh, negative. So I'd booked all these holidays, <laughs> with particularly the one with my friend in Ibiza. <laughs> so, and then obviously a week later, I found out I was pregnant. So I was like, I'll still go, you know, I'll just have quite a different holiday. And um, I remember listening to some, you know, music, euphoric, kind of just thinking I was pregnant, had a heartbeat, just thinking, yeah, this is it, you know. I had a hospital appointment because I had diabetic appointments and checkups. And I said to Steve, well, what do I do if they offer me a scam? And he said, kind of, it's up to you. And I said, well, I think I'll, I will. On the basis that it's better to know. No, because I think if I'd have honestly thought at that point that there was any risk... I wouldn't have had a scan on my own. I think I would have waited for Stephen. So I went to the hospital appointment and they said, um, oh, when's your next scan? I said, oh, I think it's booked in for 12, 12 weeks. And they said, oh, we, well, we've got some, you know, we've got someone here today. Do you want a scan? So I was like, oh, yeah, you know, go on. We'd, Stephen and I talked about it and we said if I was offered one that I would have one. So um, sort of was in the room with the sonographer and um, and she'd obviously sort of put the gel on as you do, and she was um, sort of going over my tummy. And then she said, "Can you wait there a minute?" And she she said, "I just need to get my colleague." And she left the room. And at that point, I just knew. So the other lady came in, 
she said, I'm really sorry, the heartbeat stopped. They went through the options. You can take some tablets to go home or we can book you in. Book me in. So Steve didn't know at that point. He was helping a friend move. I kind of didn't know how to tell him because I didn't kind of almost want to phone him because it kind of didn't feel fair to phone him if he was out with the news. So I came home to see if he was home and he wasn't. And I got in the car and drove to my sister's. And then she said, would you want me to phone Steve? So I was like, okay. So she she phoned and just said, you need you need to come home. It's not good news. By that point, I'd gone home. I'd come home because I knew he was coming home and then just just cried. Just remember, just kind of really, really crying. It's a very lonely, empty feeling having a loss. And we were obviously there for each other. There was a lot of a UK, well, no, but you know, I'm here, UK, kind of a lot of those conversations. It's it's kind of even though you've got each other, you you kind of you feel you feel very lonely, and you feel that everybody around you is is just moving on with their life, and you've kind of I liken it to you, you press a pause button and you just stop. And I became a bit of a recluse actually. I kind of for a couple of weeks after didn't want to go out, didn't want to see anyone, didn't speak to people, don't. Um, and you know, pregnancy and a miscarriage it's a very unspoken about topic you don't really talk about it you don't really say you've had it you don't really especially because you don't announce things generally until 12 weeks so if things happen before 12 weeks it's only really very very close friends that end up knowing about it what I found really difficult was particularly work-wise where you have to kind of pick up and almost pretend that you're okay Like I'd have a couple of weeks off work and you're going like you're feeling better now because people think you've been off with a cold like yeah you know but you kind of you almost want to scream and say to them no (laughs) I'm really not I'm not okay this has happened but you don't you just kind of like yeah yeah I'm all right you know and just just get on with things then we got referred to St Mary's in Paddington to go down to see their specialist people down there in that six weeks period Joe got pregnant for a fourth time week later so Joe would again would have been five or six weeks she started to bleed again so we rang them up and said, oh, really sorry, Joe's had another miscarriage now. And they said, oh, well, um, because we've discharged you, you've got to go through the whole process again of being referred to us by your local hospital. And it had taken us four months to get that appointment in the first place. I just said to Joe, we're not doing it anymore. I can't, can't do it. So we went on the internet and found a private miscarriage clinic in Epsom and Harley Street. He just said, okay, yeah, there's clearly a problem. I don't know what the problem is. In a lot of ways, that was worse because he did say, but clearly something is wrong because you've had four miscarriages. Mm. So we'll put you on a treatment program and see what happens. It absolutely consumed us trying to get pregnant, being pregnant, having a miscarriage, recovering from miscarriage, trying to get pregnant, getting pregnant. So you just were on this constant, constant cycle of pregnancy and pregnancy loss and obviously there'd there'd been sort of four at this point I came off Facebook because I just couldn't bear to to see any more pictures of people posting scam pictures saying oh we've got so-and-so babies due on so-and-so it got to the point where 
all I saw was pregnant people. Mm. Everywhere you looked, there'd be a pregnant person in the street. Or we went to centre parks and we went in the pool and there was just babies and pregnant people everywhere. And we spent half an hour, 40 minutes, and then we both kind of made our excuses and left because we couldn't be around them. Mm. I, f- I found it physically difficult to be around pregnant people. What were you thinking when you saw a load of pregnant people? <sighs> Why you? It sounds really bad, but you see, you'd see people on on the telly. You'd see all the stories of heroin addict has baby taken away, mm. and you'd think, well, how? Come Why did you, she get to how, how come you can do this? Yeah. We can't. Friends were having, they they were getting pregnant and having children. Used, I mean, we used to go down the pub on a Thursday night for the pub quiz. They'd all either be have children or their girlfriends would be pregnant, and all they'd do was talk about babies and pregnancy. And so it got to the point where I'd make excuses not to go, where I'd. I've got an early start in the morning and I found myself slowly withdrawing myself from going to the pub on a Thursday night because I just didn't want to sit there and look at my phone while they all talked about what they'd got and I didn't. And I remember after, I don't, I don't remember which one of the miscarriages it was now, my brother-in-law is a good friend anyway. I remember saying to Joe, can you tell Beck to tell Ollie I don't want to talk about it? If I need to talk to him about it, I'll talk to him about it, but I don't need him to come and offer to take me out for a beer mm. and I don't need to talk about it I'm better off just bottling it up and dealing with it myself and there was around that time there was about six babies born in our friendship group one of my friends he's had a hard life he's had some stuff happen to him and um, he got all he's ever wanted is children and <sighs> So now text message to let off. He told everyone that his wife was having a baby. And he said it was unexpected. And that that was like someone hit me with a bat. And of all of my friends, he was the one I couldn't have been happier for for him to be having children. It was just that one word unexpected. And it, it floored me. It floored me for about a week. And I couldn't do anything. And I found myself, I wouldn't go to anywhere where he would be because I didn't want, I, I didn't know what to say to him. I was really happy, but what do you do? How, how do why? You... why? Why was the word unexpected the thing that triggered you? Because it, they hadn't been trying and it just happened. And it was just like the easiest thing in the world. They'd, I mean, they'd only been married three months. And I knew he wanted children. I knew they were going to have children. But it was just the fact that it was they got married... And then all of a sudden, from nowhere, without even drying, they were having a baby. Yeah. That was, that was horrible. So I got pregnant a fifth time. We'd been to the clinic. We'd gone to see the specialist, gone privately. There is no excitement or joy by this point in being pregnant because you are just absolutely terrified. But again, it started, started to bleed again. About a week, week later, we phoned the clinic and they upped the treatment. I said to him, is it possible it might be me that's the issue here? Hmm. He said, well, we don't know. So we went off, I had the tests done. They came back clear as well. So again, there was still nothing that they could say, this is the problem. So we had the fifth miscarriage. 
dealt with it as best we can. And then there was number six. Probably about two weeks later that time, again, started bleeding again. Um, just like a heavy period, you do, and then you literally wait and you do a pregnancy test and it comes back negative. I remember seeing work who were fantastic. By this point, I, I was in pure existing mode. I kind of was just existing through life. I was going in, doing my job, coming home. If we went out, I was going out, being sociable, you know, face value, but coming home and just, there was no joy, no happiness. And incidentally, I mean, none of my business, but the process of baby making, it must be quite hard to get in the mood for that as well. Whilst it, a- <laughs> it becomes quite functional. Sometimes the romance, you know, wasn't wasn't there. There were kind of occasions where I'd, and again, they're all our old wives' tales, but I'd be sort of with stacked up with pillows and, you know, <laughs> trying to do anything that we could. Um, I used ovulation um, sticks to work out when I was ovulating. You know, our, our relationship came about trying, trying to have a baby. And although, you know, we love each other very much and our relationship is very strong and it, it remains strong and, and it certainly does have an effect went to see him again afterwards and um he said right we've tried we've had two miscarriages on your current treatment plan i've got another treatment plan i can try one but it's i've had good results on it but it's not cheap and again we just went we don't care what was it that was an injection every three days but the injection is what they give you when you've had a bone marrow transplant sheesh it's what they give you to boost your immune system because they said that what he thought it was was that Joe's immune system was weak, so her body couldn't cope with being pregnant. So it was just always just right, I don't know what that is. Get rid of it. Whether it's lucky or not, I fell pregnant quite quickly. So in some ways, I don't think it gave us long enough to recover. We'd booked a holiday in Cornwall. Literally had the scan, the, the seven-week scan was on our way to Cornwall. So we got up at like three, four in the morning. And it was kind of, we were like, what if it's bad news? And we were like, well, actually, if it's bad news, we're going to Cornwall for a holiday. You know, we're going to be miserable wherever we are, so why not be miserable in Cornwall where we can at least be together? So we'd actually already had that conversation of, what if we go and it's, you know, and it's not good news? So we had the scan but I remember him him sort of saying, "Oh, it's um, it's good news," and he said, "It's it's twins," and I just it it was the strangest feeling. Just the sheer shock of it being twins was just yeah. I think I think I wasn't in full on shock at that point. Two heartbeats, everything looking absolutely as it should be and we were just stunned and we went outside and joe rang her sister and her mum and dad and i remember wandering around and i realized i was looking at women's shoes in sport and soccer in epsom <laughs> and i don't even remember going in the shop and i was just just suddenly realized i was looking at pink trainers and then we got in the car and we drove to penzance in the car in almost complete silence for six and a half hours Everyone again just look at each other and just go, it's fucking twins. And then we were on holiday. We'd been there for four days and Joe started bleeding again. So we came home and we rang our local hospital and said, look, we're coming home from holiday. 
this is what's happened. The woman said, I will not go on my lunch break until you get here. I will scan you when you arrive. So we went to the hospital, they did the scan and said, everything's fine. One of them looks like its heartbeat's slowing, but they're both still alive. Come back next week. So we then had another week of, right, when's this all going to go wrong? Can't carry one, how are we going to carry two? And we went back the next week and they're like, nope, still twins, still <laughs> fine, heartbeats are okay, they're growing, everything's fine. The whole time on a knife edge of, is this going to happen? When's it going to go wrong? When's it going to go wrong? One of the midwives who did the drip for us, um, she said, you can have a baby at 24 weeks and they can survive. Mm. So we thought, right, we get to 24 weeks, that'll be the first milestone. So we got to 24 weeks. It was my, would have been my grand's birthday. We got to 26 weeks, which would have been my brother's birthday. It is my brother's birthday. We got to Christmas, and I always said I wasn't going to do anything in our house. We weren't going to have any baby stuff in the house until Christmas. So I finished work for middle of December, and I decorated the nursery. And that was, that was a big thing that we're getting ready for them now. Joe woke me up at about half past 12 at night and said, I think I'm having contractions. This was at just under 32 weeks. Rang the hospital and they said, come in. They said, we've got to treat this as you're going to have a baby in the next few days. So we've got to give you steroids for the baby's lungs because they're too small. Steve had gone home. Everything was fine. And then I went to the toilet and there was a bit of blood. And I remember calling in one of the midwives and saying, um, this has just happened. She said, oh, yes, it, it, it can happen. But what we'll do is we'll, we'll put the babies onto the monitor just to check that everything's OK. The midwife came back in and I said, I think one of the heart... Again, I wasn't kind of really sort of panicking about it. I said, I think one of the heart rates has dropped a little bit. And she looked at it and then she turned around to me and said, you, you're going to have your, your babies tonight. I was like, what? <laughs> and, she, and she said, twin one is um, in distress and we're going to need to get them out. So literally she said, can you phone your husband? So I phoned Steve and literally I said to him, you need to come in. And he said, okay. And that was the conversation we had. <laughs> you need to come in. He was okay. Thought about making a cup of tea and thought, no, I'll have a cup of tea when I get to the hospital. They threw some scrubs at me and said, this is happening now. Put these on. And then things just happened so quickly. We were wheeled into theatre. They did the epidural, sprayed my back. I remember them putting the catheter in and the midwife saying, I can feel a foot. You can't see anything because you've got a screen, obviously, with a cesarean. The doctor said, Look, we will we'll take them away and make sure that they're OK. And we were asking, is it a boy, is it a girl? And they couldn't tell us to start with. And then it was like, first baby's a girl, second baby's a boy, but still hadn't heard anything. And all of a sudden we heard Harriet scream. And that was, I have it. I'm a father. That's what you've been waiting for for a very long time. For four years. And then Barley screamed. And then they said I could go and see them. So I went to see them in the corner, with loads of people working on them. And then they literally wheeled them on a little table, showed them to Joe, and then they went. They were gone. They were in special care. So we were there for three hours, I think, waiting for them to come back to say, yeah, everything's fine, this is what the score is. There was not one day that I believed that everything was going to be okay. So until they were here, 
and someone saying they're all right, I think it was just a relief. I always thought that they would be born early just because of the, the pregnancy. Obviously, eight weeks early was a bit of a shock. Obviously, I always had hope, but you always had that seed of doubt that it would ever happen. And obviously, to be blessed with two babies and a boy and a girl. <laughs> Steve wrote into the show and asked us here to interview you both because he said this is a subject that isn't discussed very much. Why do you think that is? The unwritten rule is that you don't tell people until 12 weeks that you're pregnant. And the reason you don't tell people until 12 weeks is because one in three pregnancies end in miscarriage. So you almost, in some ways, it feels like it's belittled. Because you don't tell people until 12 weeks because things go wrong and they can go wrong and they do go wrong. So why make a big fuss when something goes wrong that everyone knows about? Yeah. So what we didn't want to be in a situation of is, oh, by the way, I was pregnant, but I've had a miscarriage. That isn't a conversation that you have with someone. Yes, your close friends know about it because, you know, you need to talk about it. Yeah, but what should actually, I mean, people are listening to this and their close friends say that to them. We had a miscarriage. What should they say back? They probably shouldn't say anything. I, Your friends are your friends. They'll be there. My friends were there. They were very much, if you need anything, you know where we are. What I needed from people was understanding. I needed that if I left somewhere early, that was okay. I remember at work once, I'd had an awful weekend and I'd, I'd sat in the staff room and someone looked at me and then looked at someone else and said, goodness me, look how miserable she is. And I was obviously at absolute rock bottom at that point. And I just wanted to stand up and scream, I've just been through my fifth miscarriage. Do you have any idea what that is like? And actually, I think I'm doing a bloody good job to be sat on this chair at work today because the way I feel right now is that I just want to go home curl up in a ball and just shut the world away this one's Harriet yeah I can tell because yellow t-shirt but blue trousers yes <laughs> I'm glad you're going for gender neutral <laughs> they're both asleep though they are both asleep okay I don't, well, we don't want to get them asleep the first six months of just hell get through it <laughs> And then oh, they're not hell. Oh, I don't know. Oh, yeah, no, it's amazing. Don't get me wrong, but I just wish that they'd sleep at night together at the same time. I really don't. Steve and Joe Peck, and their delightful six month old twins, Harriet and Barney. If you would like to share your story on the show, get in touch via the feedback form on our website, Modern Man with Two Ends. .co.uk and if you'd like to share that story with your followers we are at the modern man on twitter now a reminder that you are about to have a total change of pace alex fox is up next as usual it is as messy and frank a foxhole as ever so i would totally understand if you would rather pause the show right now take a breather and return for the sex chat when you're ready uh, otherwise brace yourself the foxhole 
is next. Uh, before we find out what your challenge is for next month, let's pause to thank our sponsors for the Zeitgeist this month, BBC Maestro. Yes, BBC Maestro is a subscription-based streaming platform. It's got loads of amazing online courses that you can take part in, which are taught by some really incredible names. Yeah, like Alan Moore, Julia Donaldson. It's an incredible repository of online video lessons from people who really know what they're talking about. Um, I'm really excited because Bill Lawrence is on there. Do you know who that is? I don't. Should I know this? He's a, well, no, it's a geeky thing to know who he is, but okay. he's, a, he's a comedy writer. Mm. And he's done an online course for BBC Maestro in writing comedy for television. He's the guy behind Scrubs and Ted Lasso. The thing about these courses is they're long. Like, he's, it's not just guy talks to camera for half an hour and shares some tips that you'd get if you went to go and see them speaking at any literary event. He has done a bespoke 21-lesson, four-and-a-half-hour course on how to write comedy for TV, how to pitch, how to work with actors, how to find your voice. I mean, they're proper deep dives. The one that really stood out for me, though, is... Um Brian Cox teaching acting. And mm. I, I don't think I've ever said this to you, Ollie. But I remind you of Brian Cox? You, yours. I do have that steely determination. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's say yeah. But I have always wanted to learn how to act properly. I don't necessarily want to be an actor, but I just quite like the idea of um, knowing how to act. And the thing about Brian Cox is, I mean, what a name to be teaching you something like yeah. acting. Well, there'd be transferable skills, wouldn't there? Even if you have no intention of being an actor, you know, the, the things that he's going to be talking about in that course, how to work with other actors, how to interpret your character, how to learn your lines, all of that stuff might be relevant for whatever you do for a job. Yeah, I was thinking more of explaining to my other half that I did put the clothes away. She just thinks that I didn't, but then I could act the way that I did. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, maybe you will make that pivot, Ollie. You know, there's there's always roles for the back half of the calf in uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. You're saying I'd be <laughs> a literal ass. Anyway, uh, if this appeals to you as it should, then use the code MAN to get 40% off your favourite video course or 40% off a subscription at bbcmaestro.com. Yes, go to bbcmaestro.com and use the code M-A-N-N to get your 40% off your favourite video course or 40% off a subscription, which gives you access to every single BBC Maestro course. Let the greatest be your teacher with BBC Maestro. Let's get physical with Alex Fox in the foxhole. Hello, Alex. Hey there, Rolly. Thank you for potholing into my cavern of depravity. Uh, what have you been up to? I have been recording a new documentary for Radio 4 Get called... you! I know, I know, I'm all over the beeb these days, aren't I? Yeah, you're uh, doing points of view next, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've actually been recording for a show called The Genius of Accidents, all about accidental discoveries in science. And did you know, Ollie Mann, that Viagra was never actually intended to be a drug for your pee? I did not. Although, no. now you say it, it makes sense that... That would be a side effect that someone would think, hello. It was originally trialled as a heart drug because it has the ability to dilate blood vessels. Uh, and nurses found that when they were doing the doing the rounds on wards uh, full of patients that were being tested on, uh, that these poor fellas were trying to shroud their crotches because they were having this unfortunate side effect. Are you sure you're not just confusing the history of Viagra for carry-on matron? Did you know that the first mention of impotence actually as a health issue goes all the way back to ancient times? 
times 2000 BC among the papyrus scrolls of Egypt. So, I bet they weren't crediting psychology with it then. Was it the gods punishing you? What was the deal? It was the result of an evil spell. Right. And the best way to undo that hex apparently was to rub dried up crocodile hearts on your phallus. Other supposed cures through history have included uh, electric shocks to both the rectum and urethra, Mm -hmm. strychnine, more commonly an ingredient in rat poison these days, and also something called the radiendocrinator, which is a little golden credit card-sized metal mesh pouch full of radioactive radium, which you were supposed to just nestle behind your scrotum in your pants and wear for days on end. Good luck trying to get that at the Lloyd's Pharmacy counter in Sainsbury's. Well, the inventor died of bladder cancer. Uh, Right, um... We're going to take a sex question from one of you listeners. Before we do, we should thank our sponsor, MyCondom.com. Who sell Jurex Extra Safe? Now, I'm often going on about how condoms these days, modern, new generation varieties, are thinner than normal. But Jurex Extra Safe are actually that little bit thicker for extra reassurance and durability. And a lot of people favour them as a condom to use during anal sex. Funny you should mention that. The question is from Man, who's chosen to remain anonymous, but says, Hi Alex, I am a gay 19-year-old man, and I'm having a bit of an issue. I have mild IBS as it runs in the family. This poses a bit of a problem as it makes me scared to bottom because of the likelihood of having an accident. Bottoming there being being the recipient partner uh, during an anal sex session. I have remained a top but would really like to bottom one day. Well, the IBS network tell me that up to 20% of people in the UK actually have I- IBS. So it's about 12 million people. It's not uncommon at all. And, and uh, irritable bowel syndrome is a group name for all sorts of issues with unpredictable bowel movements and abdominal pain mm. that occur uh, without any kind of obvious damage to the intestines. The causes really aren't clear, which means that treating it often is a bit of a hit and miss situation. Um, it's classified into four main types according to whether you get diarrhoea, constipation or an ever-so-pleasing mixture of the two. And it does mean that the usual advice I'd give to somebody who wanted to be the recipient partner in an anal sex sesh is different. Don't? Oh, different. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what, what can you do? I mean, if it is the runny diarrhoea type, there's no way to make that romantic, is there? Well, I spoke to Professor Nick Reed, who's actually from the IBS network, and he said to me that um, anal intercourse can cause pain not just at the time of sex, but for days afterwards with an uncomfy tummy or a, 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 a sore bum. So do make sure that you're doing this for the right reasons. I know that having anal sex, particularly if you're a gay guy, can really feel like an important part of your sexual identity, but make sure that you really do want to go through the physicality of that and that you're with a partner that you trust that you can talk to them about it you can prepare them for how you might feel physically and emotionally about it and also prepare them for the fact that yeah there's probably a higher likelihood than with another person that there might be some mess the professor also told me that during the build-up to sex feelings of desire tend to increase activity in the bowel region anyway because of the effect upon the parasympathetic nerves and he warned me that even if you're having quite a nice time IBS sufferers are more likely to potentially shit themselves at the moment of orgasm. So even if it's all going very well for you, there may be a Poonami moment. So um, in terms of positions and locations, um, for a lot of people who wanted to experiment with anal play, I'd say doing it in the shower might be a good idea because the warm water helps to relax you. And of course, then if any accidents do happen, then it's easy to wash them away. However, if you're a beginner to anal sex 
doing it in the shower everything's slippy and you're in a cramped environment it's hard to get a, a good grip on things that might actually be difficult um, I spoke to an IBS a gay IBS sufferer um, on Instagram who told me that he does prefer to do things on the bed but he has bought several brown towels <laughs> and he said that actually the effect upon his psyche when he knows that you know if anything does hmm. if he does let anything slip it's not going to be as obvious as it might usually be helps him to relax and actually helps prevent those accidents from 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 happening and i had a chat to my boys at clone zone which is a very gay friendly gay centric sex shop they said in terms of uh, techniques during anal sex if our listeners partner can avoid kind of dipping his penis in and out and pumping air into the lower intestine then that um, might avoid the triggering of extra pain and discomfort so choosing your position choosing your location and taking some me- some uh, measures to try and limit the amount of mess and put your mind at rest about that might be a good idea but also i mean when he talks about being the bottom as opposed to the top we all understand that he's talking about a kind of traditional gay anal sex position. However, being submissive doesn't just have to be about surrendering your bumhole, does it? I mean, there are other parts of him where you can play the submissive part with a partner that doesn't involve anal sex. Yeah, sure. I mean, I wouldn't say that all people who like to be receivers in anal sex are automatically submissive. Um, sometimes the, there won't be that kind of power dynamic. Sometimes it's about wanting the feeling of somebody inside you because that makes you feel very close to I them. I suppose in crude terms what I mean is there's your mouth and there's your hands. <laughs> there is indeed. Um, if you're with a little bit of practice, if you're a, quite a flexible person, you might also want to invest in a quite a stiff... Um, silicone masturbation sleeve and then see if you can grip that between your thighs so you're sort of making a pseudo hole if you will um, I should say at this point that if you can hear the loud heckling in the background, the people in the same room as us at the moment have no idea what we're talking about. No, they don't know that here we're, we're here in bottom corner. Yeah. <laughs> and we're about to talk about douching, because that is something that I'm asked about by lots of people when I it think comes it's fine. I mean, if you're sex. still listening to the show at this point, <laughs> you're up for it. Uh, douching is squirting a little bit of warm water into your lower intestine, inte- essentially to wash it out. Mm. Now, this is a topic of debate even for people who don't suffer from IBS because some people say douching's great, it cleans me out, it means I worry less that there is faecal matter in that part of my body uh, and I enjoy anal sex more. Other people say it washes away good bacteria, uh, it fills me with water and I find it difficult to empty that out from my bowel and sometimes I get a, a little tickly trickle when I'm least expecting it of um, unfortunate sewage liquid. Um, so it, it's already something that some people like and some people don't. The same kind of applies when it comes to IBS. Some people who suffer more from constipation actually find this relieves their IBS as well as preparing them for anal sex, whereas other people find that it makes the problem worse, particularly if they're more prone to diarrhoea. I mean, I think the bottom line, if you'll pardon the pun, (laughs) is that probably our correspondent here might be better advised until he's in a long-term or at least medium-term relationship with someone before... All of this stuff doesn't sound like stuff you'd explore on a casual date, does it? Well, anal sex, arguably, does require more planning and more talk than penis Mm. and vagina sex anyway. Uh, So it's always a good idea to do it only with somebody who you trust. In, In fact, that goes for any sex act. And everybody across the board who I spoke to said the same thing 
lube, lube, lube. Use lots of it, use a thick, long-lasting variety, and people who have inflammatory conditions in their colons tend to have more kind of um, sensitive tissue there anyway, which makes them more prone to bleeding or irritation, so lube is more important than ever before. And if you want to stock up on lube, 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 and other things to put up your bottom, uh, remember to go to mycondom.com. And use the code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, for 15% off everything there. I've got one final visual for you. While I was investigating anal sex and IBS, feel for me Mm. in my evenings, Mm. I discovered something that has been nicknamed motocross sex. It's when the recipient partner during anal is on all fours and they've got their hair in pigtails. Their lover then puts on a motorcycle helmet hops in, inserts themselves, grabs the pigtails, then says vroom, 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 and when the shit starts flying out the back of that person, it looks like a motocross bike on the trails. Wow. (laughs) I mean, I knew we did niche, but... Yeah. It's like Kawasaki with extra ball sake. I doubt anyone listening has tried that, but I'm curious now. Uh, you can let us know on the feedback page of our website, which is also where to head if you want to send Alex a question of sex for a future edition of The Fox Hole. You can remain anonymous, or you can give me as much detail about your privates and your private life as you wish. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but I do just have time to appoint a new man ambassador. It's Mikey in Dubai, who says, Ollie, I'm a big fan of the show. It is the highlight of my week. Ollie, I am sending you all some Vimto money, not beer money, as you need an alcohol license out here and I don't want to be in trouble. Uh, thank you, Mikey. I now pronounce you Ambassador for Dubai. Congratulations. Uh, and if you would like to support the show, like Mikey, and help us deliver 30 quality episodes per year, just head to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click Beer Money. Uh, music now, and our theme is by Django Django from the first of their two great albums, and stand by for our record of the week. It's by Helena King. It's called Cacophony. And I can't think of a better way to end this week's emotional roller coaster of a show. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. All those blind fixations of your own creation. Nothing was guaranteed